You've got questions, we've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, let's do this. I am absolutely ready for your calls, for your questions. Here's the number to call, 866-348-7884. As we always do on Friday, any question of any kind that you want to ask me, anything in any area of expertise where I can offer help, be it biblical or theological or cultural or experiential, anything that touches on areas of interest we have here on the line of fire, the phone lines are open, 866-348-7884. I got in from Israel by way of London last night, oh, 7.30-ish at the airport in Baltimore. But in the Baltimore area, there have been some very heavy storms in recent days. In fact, there was a fatality in Ellicott City, right where I am now, in fact, in Maryland. Uh, speaking at a conference for Tikkun, Messianic Jewish network of leaders and congregations that I've worked with closely over the years. And the luggage starts coming out very quickly, actually. I thought, great, good, going to get to the hotel quickly. And then it stops, and it stayed stopped. They kept us updated with announcements, but the weather got so bad, they had to stop bringing in bags. Now, I don't know if it was lightning. I don't know if it was just the intensity of the rain coming down. But in all my decades of travel, I've never had that happen where they had to suspend bringing bags in. Not that I remember anyway. So it was probably about an hour and a half wait there. I got to talk to a little bit to a boxer from England that I hadn't heard of before. But we are back. Got a good night's sleep. Got up and ministered this morning and thrilled to be back on the radio with you. Those who are used to watching the, the live stream watching on YouTube and Facebook, you can listen, and you can listen slash watch in that sense, but we're not doing a video feed today. All right. Uh, when, what was it? Um, Wednesday, in Beit Jala, right near Bethlehem, I did a mini-debate with Dr. Munter Isaac, who is, was the conference director at Christ at the Checkpoint is a biblical scholar and a Lutheran pastor, and we were debating replacement theology. And he wanted to emphasize that he does not hold to replacement theology, that he does not believe the Church replaced Israel, but rather that all believers become part of Israel, and that things have now been redefined. So instead of a land promised to Israel, there's a spiritual promise to everyone, and everyone participates together. And I said, you know, it's the same end result. There are no distinct promises that remain for the Jewish people, and we don't get the land. I said, you get to inherit the whole world. The Church, in that sense, inherits the whole world. We get this little slice of land. We don't get it. It's replacement theology. We hope to have the video up for that very soon, along with my message from Christ at the Checkpoint. Okay. I'm going straight to the phones, starting in Greensboro, North Carolina. Jim, you're first up. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Oh, thank you very much. Good afternoon. 
I just have a question pertaining to the Passover. Is it okay for the church to observe the Passover? Surely, uh, absolutely. Let me ask you first why you ask and in what way you would observe it. Well, I'm I'm not that sure how I would observe it other than uh, just asking out of curiosity. Yes, sir. Okay, excellent. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's talking about sin in their midst. And he says, look, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then he says, for Messiah, our Passover, meaning our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Let us therefore keep the feast and get rid of the old leaven. Now, it's possible he was speaking to them in a metaphorical, spiritual way. Remember, a lot of the Corinthians had first heard the gospel because they were in the synagogue. They weren't converted to Judaism, but they were God-fearers. They were Gentiles who feared and worshipped the God of Israel and held to certain basic commandments. And therefore, they would be fully familiar with what Passover meant. For Paul to say, let us keep the Passover, and yet for it to be wrong to do it, even if you meant it metaphorically, certainly it's not wrong to do it. Now the question is, how would you do it? If you went to the home of a Jewish friend that was not a believer in Yeshua, you would participate in a celebration of the exodus from Egypt, and that's great, that's fine, but it would end there. The best thing is to look for a Messianic Jewish congregation in your area, and they will always have, or most of them will have an annual Passover Seder, but they'll go through some of the tradition and the celebration of our deliverance from Egypt, but then they will culminate in the death and resurrection of the Messiah. But absolutely, if there's, if there's any uh, holiday that's appropriate for Christians to participate in, put Passover at the top of the list. So thank you for calling, sir. 866-348-7884. Uh, one other thing of interest I hope you've seen by now our video, our six-minute illustrated video, Can You Be Gay and Christian? Well, what happened was we started, we started getting lots of angry responses from those in the LGBT community saying, why is this being advertised on one of my channels and I just want to watch some gay content? Well, we were given some money to help promote and advertise the video, and I guess as YouTube slash Google is looking for different places to play them because of the subject matter. They put them on these uh, LGBT, channel, LGBT channels as well as biblical channels and other things. So there's just an article on a gay website that's angry with YouTube promoting, quote, anti-gay content on their stations. So or channels, that was never my intent. And, and I didn't make the arrangements with YouTube, but we just told them the theme of it. Here, they, they, they watch it. They have to review it. Then they see the key words involved, and, and it's a very gracious video. There's not a anyone calling it hatred has to just call it hatred because of their own positions, not because of a syllable that we say on it. Uh, that that being the case, that being the case, it, it's interesting that now the video is getting even more play and more attention in the LGBT community. So let it be. Let the truth of the gospel go forward. All right, we go to New Brunswick, Canada. Hey. Reese, I'm not sure when you last called. We, we have a rule how often someone can call, but I'm just back from Israel, getting over jet lag. So even if you called yesterday, welcome back. So thanks for calling the show. 
Hey, no problem. I think it was uh, three weeks ago, something like that. So all right, okay, that works. That you're 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 perfectly <laughs> legal then, also. Oh, good, good to hear. All right, well, I was just wondering uh, about the uh, uh, what's the significance of the high places in the Old Testament. I know in the Kings and Chronicles, it often says that uh, such and such king uh, removed the idols, but didn't ter- uh, didn't. Uh, stop people from worshiping in the high places. So I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on what the significance of that is. Yeah, so first, let's talk about what it actually was. Uh, High places were literally high places. You would go up on a hill or go up somewhere on a mountain, and there you would offer sacrifices to your particular deity. Uh, This was commonly done in the ancient world, and and it's, it's still something done today where people will get up to a higher Uh, physical location, thinking somehow that will bring them closer to the deity, something like that. So uh, this is what was done, but they were primarily used for worshiping idols. And at at Israel's best, they were used to worship Yahweh, and sacrifices were offered there that should have been offered in the temple, but the Israelites still did that. At their worst, they were used to offer up uh, sacrifices to other gods. Now, interestingly, Reese. When I was in India one trip, been there 25 times, but was talking to one of my friends there, they were building a hospital on, on the side of a mountain, and they said it's creating a lot of hostility. It's a Christian hospital, and they're going to have a, a prayer tower and things like that, because it was going to be higher than the, the highest Hindu temple in the city. Mm, and we right. were told that, that the, the Hindus wanted their place to be the highest, you know, and maybe it's most prominent as well. So, you know, in whatever way, people still tend to think like this. But Hmm. in the rarest of rare times, a king like Josiah would even go after the high places, no matter what they were used for, because worship, in terms of sacrifices, were only to take place at the temple. But if if you want to liken this to spiritual life, let's just say that when it says the king did this, 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 but didn't, stop them worshiping on the high places. They were worshiping to Yahweh, but just not according to the Torah. That would, right. that would be like a believer. Let's just say you get saved, and, and you were into pornography, and you were a heavy drinker, and, and you gambled heavily, and, and you had this method where you kind of stole a little money from your job, and, and you got rid of the first three things, but you're still stealing that little money. It'd be the same thing. You, know, you repented of this, 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 but you didn't deal with this. And I think that's how right. we can often look at it in terms of spiritual application in our own lives, that we, we often do that, that we, we don't fully surrender. We, we deal with certain issues, but don't fully surrender. Hey, thank you for calling. Reese, always good to talk to you up in Canada. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go back to North Carolina and Winston-Salem. Douglas, welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. It's an honor to talk to you. First first time I've ever spoken to you, but I listen to your program quite a bit. Uh, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Dr. Brown, uh, very quickly, why are pastors assuming or taking the titles of apostle or title of a prophet uh, when there is no such thing as according to Scripture. Uh, and that mm-hmm. kind of tripped me up, and I said, well, I'll call Dr. Brown. Maybe he can tell me 
why are they doing this? It seems like to me uh, that's kind of out of order, and I'll get off and listen to what you say. All right. Well, thank you, Douglas. And, and what a joy to speak with you, sir, as well. Thank you for being a, a faithful listener. Okay, number one, uh, even though the Bible talks about people being called pastors or evangelists, it never says to use that title in front of the name. We've just gotten used to it. Pastor Smith, Evangelist Jones. But really, biblically, uh, you didn't put the title in front of your name. That's just something that we've done, and we're used to doing that. In the same way, there are people who believe there are apostles and prophets alive today, not an apostle like the Twelve Apostles with that authority, but an apostle in terms of a church plant or a leader of a ministry network. Because of that, they'll use that title. But stay right there, sir. I'll be right back to finish on the other side of the break. More of your questions when we come back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-348-7884. So, again, just responding to the question about why someone puts apostle or prophet in front of their name, I do believe that just as God raises up pastors and evangelists and teachers, there are people with genuine apostolic calling and ministries. They may have a network of thousands of churches they've planted. They may pioneer a new ministry work in a region. And I believe that they function as modern-day apostles, just not like the Twelve or those writing Scripture like Paul. They do not have that kind of authority, but absolutely functioning in apostolic ways. So, in other words, they're not primarily a local church pastor or only a local church pastor. And just like you might be familiar with someone being called bishop, and yet nowhere in the Bible does it say put bishop in front of someone's name, it was simply describing what they were doing or what their ministry calling or office was. It's the same with apostle. And I believe they're prophets today, people that God speaks to and give insight, gives insights to and certain special ways, but they're not writing the Bible or having authority like Isaiah or Jeremiah did. They're like other New Testament prophets whose words were not considered Scripture, but were considered to be words that God was speaking. It would be as if I, I was praying for you, and I said, Brother, I really I, I sense that you're about to have a major move. I even see you relocating, and I feel the Lord saying, don't be afraid if you do it. And you say, man, you can't believe I, I was just about to, I'm making a major move, and I'm nervous, didn't know if it was from the Lord. That's really comforting. It doesn't add or take away from the Bible, right? But that would be a, a way that a modern-day prophetic ministry could operate. That being said, I understand that it can be confusing if you see apostle in front of someone's name or prophet in, someone's, in front of someone's name. Because you think, was that, does that make him like the, the Apostle Peter or like Jeremiah? So no, of course it doesn't. And I would personally prefer that we don't put any title in front of names. Uh, all right? that we didn't put pastor in front of a name or evangelist in front of a name or prophet or apostle, but because we do, it's simply identifying the calling on that person's life and how God uses them. Now, does it mean that because you put a name or a title in front of your name, that's who you actually are? Not necessarily. I might call myself evangelist Mike Brown, but not be called to be an evangelist. I might call myself pastor Mike Brown and not be called to be a real shepherd. I might call myself prophet Mike Brown and not be a true prophet. 
So putting the title in front of our name doesn't prove anything. It's how we live our lives and the anointing that God puts on us. All right, let's go to Orlando, Florida. George, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how you doing? Doing very well, thank you. Yeah, I just had um, a question. You know, I read the whole Bible cover to cover, and I know what the truth is, uh, but I just want you to kind of fill in a blank for me. It's, kind of, it's a pretty uh, technical question, I guess. <clears throat> in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, um, you know, the, the, the outline for the New Covenant, Yes, sir. It's directed, it's, it's, it is directly, it's in the text, it's directly for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah, uh, mm-hmm. the two ancient, you know, the two ancient kingdoms of Israel. I guess what I'm saying is, is there a citation that you can give me from Jeremiah or even from any Old Testament prophet where God said that, that, that the new covenant would also be for the Gentiles? Yeah, it's an excellent question, George. Sometimes the church has read it as if the church is the new Israel and the new Judah, which is not the case. Because, for example, in Romans 11, Paul says, I'm writing to you Gentiles because I want you to provoke Israel to envy. So the Gentiles don't become Israel, and Israel doesn't become the Gentiles. And we see clearly that the benefits of the new covenant through the Messiah are offered to all Uh, And that's throughout the New Testament. And we see in Ephesians 2 that Gentile believers are fellow citizens in God's household together with uh, Jewish believers. The question would be, where do we find that in the Old Testament? And Mm -hmm. what I would suggest in terms of the the best place to look for things like this would be in uh, Messianic passages, for example, in, in the book of Isaiah, all right? And where you'll have passages about Gentile and Jew being joined together, or, you know, Isaiah 56 and God's house being a house of prayer for all nations, uh, or the end of Isaiah 19, where Israel, Assyria, and Egypt will all serve Yahweh together, and that Israel will be the third part along with these two. And you could say, yeah, but that's for a future error. Well, yeah, the fullness of the realization of the New Covenant is for the future as well. It has not been made with the entire house of Israel and Judah. We have not entered into the fullness of it, simply the the beginning of it. This is the seed form the fullness will be uh, when, when the Lord's kingdom is established fully on the earth. So Paul recognizes that that prophesied error of Jew and Gentile coming together as one has already broken in now. And we can begin to live that out. So I would say the way that we would have the, the hint of that is all of these passages in the prophetic books about Jew and Gentile worshiping the God of Israel together. Well, how does that happen? Well, obviously we're all experiencing those covenant blessings together, and this is what's prophesied in Jeremiah about that error. These passages are telling us it's going to happen. The New Testament tells us it's now begun. The Messiah's work has now begun to bring that to pass. To me, that's the most explicit way to show how Jew and Gentile join together in the New Covenant. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, so although the specific passage of Jeremiah 31-31 would be towards the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, 
other passages that would seem to be a unification of Jew and Gentile kind of then brings me as a Gentile to kind of graft myself in, kind of. So yes, so, yeah, so George, you yeah, look at it as the same principle, George. The same way Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, and he comes as the Messiah of Israel. And, and, and Matthew 1 says that he will save his people from their sins. His people, right? And he's coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10, I've come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Luke 24, repentance, forgiveness of sins must be preached uh, to all nations. But beginning in Jerusalem, same with Acts 1.8, beginning in Jerusalem. So that's where the covenant is made, because there was no covenant with the Gentile people to make a new covenant with. There had been the Sinai covenant with Israel, now the new and better covenant. So the Messiah coming into the world inaugurates that now because he's also the Savior of the world, that now goes out to the nation. So all those passages about Jew and Gentile serving God together in the Messianic era, we see the beginning, the first fruits of them now. Great question. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Washington, D.C. Sean, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, welcome back. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you, sir. Hey, I had a question. Um, I'm at a place in my spiritual walk with Christ that I don't know another way to to, uh, convey it other than I'm kind of challenging what I've always been taught, not against the truth, just against uh, certain doctrines. For instance, I've always been taught, raised pre-tribulation rapture as far as 1 Thessalonians 4 and 16 through 18, 1 Corinthians uh, 15 starting at 51 through 56. But I know... Uh, your position is post-tribulation. I really want to, you know, study that and kind of weigh that against, um, you know, my position is pre-tribulation rapture. So is there any sources or, of course, scriptures that you would know right offhand, really some resources I can do to dig and and, kind of study for myself and arrive at my own, you know, conclusion, however the Lord leads? Yeah, you bet. And that's the way we do it, honoring our brothers and sisters who differ there, some of the finest Christians I know in the world hold to a pre-trib rapture, which, which I haven't for over 40 years. All right, the book that Dr. Craig Keener and I have written, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-trib Rapture, that comes out in March. So just put that down on your list, Brown and okay. Keener, Not Afraid of the Antichrist. That comes out in March, so that'll be a real help to you. The first thing I'd encourage you to do is ask yourself, the passages that you're familiar with, where does it say anything about pre-trib? Where does 1 Thessalonians say a word about order of things with tribulation? Where does 1 Corinthians 15 say a word about things? It it doesn't. It simply tells us what's going to happen when we're caught up to meet him. That's number one. Number two, read through 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And there you'll see that, oh, by the way, everyone listening, I am doing my broadcast live from a hotel where there seems to be a party with little kids running and jumping outside my door. So as soon as I have a break, I'm going to ask them to please be quiet. But anyhow, uh, all right, so 2 Thessalonians 1 says that we will receive relief when the Lord comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God. 2 Thessalonians 2 says that that day can only come after the apostasy and the revealing of the Antichrist. So that's quite explicit. And then Mm. check this out, Sean. Matthew 24, 
Matthew 24, says that, that the Messiah will come for the whole world to see him, and he comes with, what, the sound of the trumpet, right? Well, doesn't it say in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last trumpet is when we're raptured? But there's a trumpet where the whole world sees him. Doesn't 1 Thessalonians 4 say he's coming with a trumpet? And doesn't Revelation 11 say when that seventh trumpet, the seventh of seven, which is the last trumpet, sounds that it's now announced the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever? So, what I understand is when that last trumpet sounds, the whole world sees him coming. And at that moment, we are caught up to meet him before the whole world, and we descend together with him gloriously. But chew on these things and pray and come to your own conclusions. We'll be right back with more of your questions. Change the world. Change the world. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. 866-348-7884. We are back live in the States. That's the good news. Had a good night's sleep. And I guess about 12 hours after I got in last night, I had to get up uh, to minister this morning. So I uh, got to my hotel, I don't know, 9.30, 10 at night, and was speaking again at 9.30 this morning. But all is well. And I'll tell you, once again, eating healthily pays massive, massive dividends, gives strength and vitality to bounce back and to keep going. Uh, now, that's the good news. Bad news is I have an Italy trip next week, so... Leave for Italy, God willing, after the Thursday night broadcast next week. So traveling through the night and then in Italy ministering Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, and then flying back. So just be home for a few days. And I think Italy and, and Israel just about in the t- same time zone or the same time zone. So I'm trying to figure out if I should get on normal schedule while I'm home for a few days. But anyway, here we are, ready to go. 866-348-7884. Any question of any kind whatsoever. In any area of expertise I have, give me a call. And let's go to Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Tammy, welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you. I You're very welcome. To, I wanted to ask about the Temple Mount and the Rock of the Dome. I hear, Dome of the Rock. Yeah. yeah. And um, I hear both of them talking about, are they one and the same um, if not, could you explain who owns what and what's allowed to happen there? Yeah, yeah. The Temple Mount is a physical location, all right? The Dome of the Rock is a mosque that is built on the Temple Mount. Okay. There are two mosques that were built there by uh, the Islamic uh, the Islamic leaders, rulers that took over the area. The first, the Dome of the Rock, which is the larger and more prominent, where Muslims go to pray on a daily basis. And then the Al-Aqsa Mosque, not far away, smaller, also a sacred place to Islam where Muslims go and pray on a daily basis. Now, that entire area is under Israeli control. For many, many centuries, it was outside of Jewish control. That is under Israeli control. And it is all on the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock in particular, on the Temple Mount. 
it would be a place where, as I understand it, if a third temple was built, the third temple would be built there. Yes. But it is under Israeli control. However, Israel protects the Muslims' right to be there. So the Dome of the Rock is up higher. Where Jews go to pray is by the wall, uh, called the Wailing Wall, but uh, traditional Jews just call it the wall. And that's in one area, and then above that, and just a little bit off from there, is the Dome of the Rock. Of course, I was just over there a few days ago. So Israel makes sure that Muslims only can go in there and pray, and that no one disrupts their sacred sites. Uh, And within that, they've given Muslims control of a lot of things. In fact, there's even complaint that Islamic leadership has tried to destroy some ancient artifacts and dig under where the ancient temple was and and destroy uh, what would be ancient ruins of great value archaeologically. But it's under Israeli control, and then within that, Israel gives the Islamic leadership control under them to preserve their sites and things like that. So Temple Mount, a physical, geographical place, Dome of the Rock, a mosque built there. Okay? Thank you. You're very welcome. Hey, friends, you want to see this firsthand? Walk these sites? See them with your own eyes? Join me and Scott Volk as we go to Israel next year. Yeah, February 1st through 10th. It's all on my website. Sign up. AskDrBrown.org. Oh, oh, also, don't forget, don't forget, a week from yesterday. So, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, two weeks, two weeks. We start our second online leadership forum. Now, you have to sign up and pay. It's like a class. But this is for leaders and leaders in training. Uh, If there's any way you can participate, the first one got rave, rave reviews where we're really pouring into folks on a leadership level, take questions. It's interactive as well. So sign up for it. The next one we're going to deal with how to handle criticism and rejection. Yeah, so just go to my website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and Just look on the banners. You'll see one coming up for the Leadership Forum. All right, let us go to Jacksonville, Florida. Marcus, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thank you, thank you. Um, And thank you for your zeal and faithfulness. I thank God for the children of God. And as more Gentiles are falling asleep, uh, hundreds of Jews are coming to the Lord now. It seems prophetic for this time. Um, I had a question. With your Jewish background, I was hoping you could answer um you know um i think steven spielberg's wife produced that above and beyond uh where they interview actual surviving pilots of the revolutionary war in israel and uh, okay yeah i haven't haven't seen that yeah but go ahead it's powerful because um you know they always say uh, israel wouldn't be anywhere without america well they only had four planes and although truman acknowledged israel he kept the embargo, so they had to smuggle those four planes that were used in the initial, but they haven't lost the war, so bless the Lord for that. But no, uh, I did hear somewhere, uh, John in the Revelation said that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, and someone said, well, that's in Genesis 1-1 in the Hebrew, Aleph Tev. And so I looked up on the Blue Letter Bible, they have that interlinear, and yeah. sure enough, there it is, and it's there's no translation for it. The initial yeah, time it's, it's because yeah, that, that's based on someone who had no clue about the Hebrew language, sir. Yeah, I, I, I get asked this from, from time to time. So, so Alpha and Omega, that's like A and Z in English, right? It's the first letter and the last letter of the alphabet. So in the, in the New Testament, 
Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. In, in Hebrew, he'd be the Aleph and the Tav. In English, he'd be the A and the Z. Okay? Now, in Hebrew, there's something called a direct object marker. Uh, it, is, it is used uh, before a proper name, okay, or if, a, if the word has the in front of it. So in Hebrew, in the beginning, God created et, that's all of top in Hebrew, et, the heavens, and et, the earth. It's not to be translated. It occurs, according to what I'm looking at here, 7,372 times. Now, it's possible a couple of the things got mixed in there, but it's used over and over and over and over and over. And anyone who understands the grammar understands Hebrew, even just a couple days' worth of learning Hebrew, you know that this is just a direct object marker. Now, you have the same thing in the Aramaic language. Instead of Aleph Tav, you have Yud Tav. So instead of the first and the last letter, you have the tenth and the last letter. So you have Yat versus Et. It's just something that's done in some Semitic languages. That's it. If you're going to try to make it some, something of spiritual significance, because remember, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, right? He, it, it, there's nothing ambiguous there. Well, if you were to try to fit this in 7,000-something times, you would have complete nonsense of the Scriptures. In the beginning, God created Alpha and Omega, the heavens, and Alpha and Omega, the earth, and, and on and on endlessly. So forget that. 100% whoever told you that demonstrated to you that they have no idea how the Hebrew language works. It's impossible that anyone who knows Hebrew even a little would make that mistake. All right, Marcus, thank you for the call. And yes, the Lord is our Alpha and Omega, the Alpha and Omega. Uh, let's go to, Sh go to Shelby, but we won't. Let us go to uh, James... In Columbia, Maryland, welcome, sir, to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Uh, I just have a quick question related to uh, baby dedication or uh, infant christening. Um, I really don't understand it, and is it really necessary, and is it scriptural? Okay, so let's, let's look at two different things, dedicating babies sure. versus baptizing babies, all right? Right. There are... Christians who, for many centuries, going back fairly early in church history, said that just as circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, so also it is with baptism. So a baby Israelite boy, eight days, was physically circumcised, right, uh, and then had to live up to the demands of the covenant. So some would say that baptism has now taken that place, and someone just referenced in a meeting where I was the other day the words of Martin Luther that baptism on a baby was like a garment that they will then grow into. So uh, that's, that's interesting, but I don't find that in Scripture. I don't right. find that baptism takes the place of circumcision, and every reference to baptism in the New Testament, people are called on to repent and be baptized, to believe and be baptized. So I hold to believer baptism only. So if someone got saved, say that was baptized into the Catholic Church as an infant, I would tell them now to get baptized as an adult. Uh, I would believe that's the right thing to do. Now what about dedication? There's nothing in Scripture explicitly saying that we should dedicate children, but you have examples of it. You, you have uh, examples of, you know, for, for example, Hannah in, in 1 Samuel, she dedicates her child 
to the Lord. Now, of course, that was for full-time service. That was out of a, a vow, if you give me a child, I'll give him to you. But think, every firstborn Israelite had to be redeemed. If it was the firstborn animal, right, the firstborn from the mother, the firstborn male, it would be sacrificed, okay, because every firstborn belonged to the Lord. What about our firstborn son? Well, you're not going to sacrifice the child, so you had to sacrifice an animal in that child's uh, stead. So there was a sense of belonging to the Lord in that respect. And all the, all the verses about children being gifts from God, uh, everything having to do with uh, temple rituals after a child was born, where the mother would have to be purified. There's just a lot that happened in terms of children in their beginnings being associated with the Lord. So I, I think it's a great practice, and what you're doing is you're, you're really asking for prayer. This is what it is. You bring up the, the mother, the father, the, the baby, and you pray over the child. And you say, Lord, we dedicate this child to you. Use this child for your glory. Keep this child safe. I love praying prayers over babies. Now, sometimes in India, I'm asked to name them, too, which I really have to think and pray about, because that's that kid's name for life. Uh, but I think it's a great practice. And, and it's a, a, a solemn thing for the family. And it's something that reminds you every day that child was dedicated to the Lord uh, out of the womb for the purposes of God. So I, I, I think it's great. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't do it. In fact, I think it's something we should do to celebrate the new birth and then to pray for the family that they would be the parents that God wants them to be. All right, uh, 866-34-TRUTH. Where are we going next? Do I tell you what, we're going to Chase in Maryland next. Then we'll go to Sean in Texas and Robin in Phoenix. And if we can get some more calls, we'll do that right on the other side of the break. Hey, thanks for helping me with jet lag. Just got back from Israel just 24 hours ago and uh, doing well, thriving. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, racing straight back to the phones, 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Chase in Lesby, Maryland. Hey, I'm in Ellicott City right now. Where's Lesby? Um, um, it's actually in southern Southern Maryland. Really, it's just like, just like right closer to Virginia. Really. Got it. Okay, I wasn't familiar with it. Well, welcome to the broadcast. What's <laughs> up? Well, uh, thank you, Michael. Well, um, um, I just wanted to ask you a, a question about your personal view on. On Christian music, just one in particular, because I know we have Christian praise and worship music and Christian pop and Christian rap, etc., etc. But um, I wanted to ask you, what is your personal view on Christian rock music? Do you think it's bad? Do you think it's good? Or do you think it all depends on how we would u- we would use that? Yeah, it it all it uh, all yeah, one hundred percent all depends on. Uh, how it's used, what the message is, how the people are performing it. Uh, for, for ex- now, now, look, you can have music that's so loud that it literally hurts your ears and damages them for life. I mean, that's, that's not helpful. And, and mm. you could do things in such a way where it's impossible to hear the words or the message, and it's just screaming and shrieking. That's not helpful. Mm. 
But yeah. I don't see that there's anything holier in itself uh, about, say, a, a note on a piano or a note on a violin or a note on a harp or a note on an electric guitar or a note on a drum. And mm. certainly there's, you know, Middle Eastern music has a lot of passion and soul to it. Uh, so in, in any case... Uh, yeah, there is powerful Christian rock music I, I love, and it ministers to me. Uh, if the people singing it are godly, and if the message is a good message, then let it be used. Now, not everything is conducive with worship. Certain things may be better for outreach. For example, I think hip-hop and rap do very well for getting a message out, where someone can really convey, you know, use a lot of scripture and a lot of message and get it out. And I've written a whole book on the power of music to come out, oh, I don't know, sometime next year, I think. Uh, so I'm looking at all different forms of music and how they can be used. Music in itself is tremendously powerful, for good or for bad. We know that in society. And the next time you're watching a, a movie or a drama, uh, check out what happens if the music's not there. You know, turn the sound <laughs> down and suddenly it's nothing. So, uh, you know, hip-hop and rap, for example... Man, you can get a gospel message out, you can speak against sin, and you can call for righteousness, and so on, and you can expose hypocrisy, but I don't know that it's, it's the kind of stuff that you can worship with just because of the particular genre. So the mm. same way, I've heard some forms of rock that to me there's a certain shrill intensity to that I could not imagine, okay, how can I just take this, and Lord, I love you, and I worship you, but I've seen it used... Like uh, some grads from a ministry school years ago used something that sounded like heavy metal, and it was a song where the guy is crying out. He's been abused as a child. He's hurting. He's he's crying out. And there's a scream to it, and then it's his wife singing as the voice of God. You know, come to me, and it's it's wow. It's very there's redemption in it. So I think it's all how it's used in the days of the Salvation Army. William Booth was criticized in the early days of the Salvation Army. They would take tunes that were sung in the bars uh, and then sing them, but with new words, and march down the street singing them. And, and people would, uh, you know, complain using worldly music. He said, every note belongs to God. The devil took any, we'll take them back. Uh, I believe Martin Luther, someone can correct me on this, but I believe he wrote some songs to the tune of secular music and put gospel to it, because people are familiar with the tune. Now they'd hear the gospel through it. So let music be redeemed. Perhaps there are certain forms that can't be, but I certainly think uh, the rock form, which is very wide, can absolutely be used for gospel purposes. It has been for years. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Grand Saline, Texas. Sean, welcome to the Line of Fire. Yes, thanks, Dr. Brown. Uh, first time calling you. Hey, hey Sean, do me a favor. Could you speak, yeah, speak up right in the phone so we can all hear you clearly? Yes, can you hear me now? Uh, a little bit better. I'll, I'll listen carefully. Go ahead. I had a question about the latest thing going on with Jesse DePlantis, him getting a jet and asking money for it, specifically your personal opinion on this issue, and what do you think of other preachers or commentators complaining and criticizing him, but they give no scripture as to why it's wrong other than their personal disgust for a preacher owning a jet? Mm. Okay, Ex excellent question, and I I'm going to answer this as directly as I can. And, Sean, thanks for, for calling the broadcast. All right, uh, number one, uh, I wrote an article a few years ago when Creflo Dollar 
did a fundraising push for a sixty-something million dollar jet, and and I wrote an article called "Why Creflo Is Not Getting Any of My Dollars." So uh, I would write the same article for Jesse Duplantis why he won't be getting any of my money. Now listen, if he says God told him he's supposed to have this jet and it's important he has it because everywhere he's going around the world he needs it, well then you take that to you and the Lord and you pray it through and if God gives you that jet, you got that kind of faith and you can use it for his glory, so be it. Now I have friends of mine in ministry and their ministries own jets and or own a jet and well it's it's not one of these you know 60 million dollar jets but it's very important for them and it and they are good stewards in other words where they go how they do it what their schedule is it actually works out well for them to do it i'm listen i just flew back and forth to israel and i got an inexpensive business class ticket so it probably cost over twice what an economy ticket would cost uh, someone uh, helped out with funds for us to, to do the entire trip. I got, but I, I, we shopped around. We tried to be frugal. I was bringing another team member with me, the food coach. But I fly so much. I'm constantly in the air. Uh, you know, again, home for, uh, home for 12 hours ministering after 12 hours getting home, and then a few days later going back overseas, that it's really important for me for me to be able to, to rest as best as possible. But even then, we, we shop around because we're trying to be very careful because people are donating their money to help us with our work. To me, it would be obscene. To me, to me, it would be obscene to be raising money for something like that. Uh, I, I see no possible justification for it. If you believe God wants you to do it, then you pray and let God bring you the money or let some billionaire say, hey, I want to give you this jet. That being said, so I absolutely don't like it. I, I, I disagree with it. I feel it brings reproach to the gospel. I feel it makes us all look bad and we're greedy and in, in it for money. So I'm grieved over it. That being said, it also grieves me when people who give very little money to gospel work or make very little sacrifice for the work of the gospel then turn around and throw stones. That's what grieves me on the other side. So this grieves me, Jesse Duplantis' announcement, grieves me, and I think I'll repost my article, Why Creflo's Not Getting Out of My Dollars, Any of My Dollars, saying same thing this time around. But I, I, know, I know some folks, they're critical of everything, and they give almost nothing. And then some other churches, they emphasize prosperity a little too much, but they give, and 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 they give, and, they give, and they're generous, and they support the gospel. So let's be generous, let's bless, let's encourage. Hey, you're not holier if, if your car breaks down every three minutes. You're not holier if you have to walk to the airport because you didn't have enough money for the taxes. It doesn't make you holier. And it doesn't make you any holier to fly in a big jet or a nice jet. Let's be generous. Let's support the gospel generously. Let's not be hyperjudgmental. Uh, and let's call out what's wrong when it's wrong. Hey, thank you, sir, for asking. 866-34-TRUTH. All right. Robin in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hold a second. Hi, I am nice to talk to you. I just found you. My husband just told me about your podcast. So my question is, I don't want to be deceived, and I'm worried about. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Loud and clear. Okay. Great. Okay. I listen to Todd Friel from Wretched Radio also. 
And some of the things have pricked my spirit that, uh, is he replacement or not? And some things I hear and it sounds fun. But sometimes he'll say something and that he disagrees with, and then under his breath he'll go, like Michael Brown. Are you that Michael Brown that he keeps kind well, of... I'm the man, yeah. He, he, and, he and Phil Johnson branded me dangerous. Dangerous Dr. Brown. Yeah. God yeah. bless Todd. Okay. I, I, love, I love Todd. Yeah. All right, so, so tell you <laughs> what, I... I, I know your question is, what's my beef with him? I'm only jumping in because I'm looking at my clock. Not yours, right, not yours. What's his beef with you? I yeah, trust yeah, yeah. And, and exactly trust you. No, got it, got it. Okay, so uh, real real quick, and I, I hope we don't get cut off with the end of the show. Number one, I'm charismatic and he's not. And I'll debate that with anyone in terms of what does the Bible say. So that's number one, I'm charismatic, he's not. And that scandalizes him. Number Number two... Uh, I'm friends with people that he thinks are like fringe, extremist, charismatics, and I know these people. As, as, there's a lot of junk in the charismatic movement. I've written a whole book called Playing with Holy Fire. But yes. uh, he, so I address abuses, but people I know to be men of God who really love the Lord, solid in the Word, servant heart, doing a good job, you know, he doesn't think some of them are saved. And he's told me that the one time, one of the two times we talked by phone. So because I'm friends with some of these people, therefore, if he believes they're guilty of extremes, then I'm somehow uh, guilty of that as well. That seems to be his bigger beef. I think if it was a kind of a quiet, charismatic, he wouldn't have as big a beef with me. So he mm-hmm. thinks, and because I've lovingly challenged Pastor John MacArthur, and he's close with Pastor MacArthur, he has issues with me. If you get my book, Authentic Fire, Authentic Fire, that would give you an idea of some of the controversies. But God bless Todd Friel. I love you, man.